I'm thankful for the privilege of serving you in the gospel this weekend. Um, Let's get after it. Okay? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 16. This is my favorite passage in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is God's word. Now we're here because we believe in the grace of God in Christ. We believe in nothing else. If God is not merciful to the undeserving for the sake of Christ, we are damned. And nothing else in our lives, however promising it may seem to be, finally matters. But if God is merciful to the undeserving who trust in Christ, we are saved. And nothing else in our lives, however dark at this time, finally matters. We also believe that the grace of God is not an abstraction or it's not an automatic process. We believe that God personalizes his grace through Jesus, his son. When God receives us through Christ, he gets involved personally. He doesn't hold his nose 
and keep us off at arm's length. But he moves toward us, receives us, embraces us, adopts us as his very own children. He wasn't stuck with us. He chose us. And Charles Wesley taught us to sing, He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. So, our anxiety over condemnation and abandonment and shame and so forth, these are answered in the gospel of adoption. And this grace of adoption has nothing to do with our obedience to the Father. It has everything to do with the Son's obedience to the Father for us. So, we're here because our Father cares about us. He's personally involved with us. And he cares about the young people that you are caring for. He cares about alienated young people. He cares about exhausted young people. He cares. They have no idea how much God cares for them. And how much love God offers them. He cares about socially dislocated people, emotionally undernourished people, cynical people. And we are those people. And he sees it all and he cares about us. He cares in the most meaningful way that the Father, through the Son, gathers to his heart the sinners and the sufferers as his own adopted ones and he rejoices over us. And he provides for us as a good father does. And he prepares a future for us as a good father does. And we're here at this conference simply to savor this grace of God toward us to comfort our hearts with it, to be replenished and rejuvenated in the love of God for the unworthy. And then go tell people about it. Back where we came from. Now the one who revealed to us the grace of adoption most clearly was the Apostle Paul. And Romans 8 is... uh, a classic passage on this surprising reality. We see adoption taught explicitly in verses 15 and 23, both our present adoption and our future greater adoption. Then in verses 31 to 39, of course, Paul rejoices that nothing will ever separate us from this love of God in Christ. So we're going to survey Romans 8 to see the the grace of adoption naturally effortlessly embedded in what many regard as possibly the greatest chapter in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We cannot be faithful to the gospel without calling undeserving people to receive the adopting love of God, and we will be faithful ministers of the gospel by doing so. Romans 8 will help us. So, Romans 8 um, answers a question. Uh, Romans chapters 1 through 5 are Paul's theological lecture. Chapters 6 through 11 are Paul's Q&A session. Not all the questions that he's answering and the objections he's satisfying are explicitly stated in chapter 6 through 11, but they're all there. And so Romans 8 is meant to answer a question. It's as if in chapters 1 through 5, Paul stands there and 
um, gives his lecture, and he's finished at the end of chapter 5. Hands go up all over the room, and he starts answering these questions. So when we come to this part in Romans, there's a question he's addressing. Here it is. This is after the painful self-revelation in chapter 7, which you're familiar with. Here's the question then flowing out of chapter 7 that explains chapter 8. What grace does God have for people like Paul and people like us who sin so much we shock even ourselves? How does God help sinners who have the law and know the right thing to do and have the right answers memorized and keep failing? Paul has already hinted at the answer earlier in chapter 5, for example. He said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So Romans chapter 8 tells us how far the grace of God in Christ is willing to go for the sake of weakened sinners. And the key word in chapter 8 is the word spirit. In chapters 1 through 7, the word spirit occurs five times. In chapters 9 through 16, the word spirit occurs eight times. In chapter 8, the word spirit occurs 21 times. More than in any other chapter of the New Testament. So then, how does God help people like us who sin and then sin again and then sin again? And we think, you know, I, uh, I've got to get that under control. I really do. And then we do it again and we think, oh my goodness. And then we do it again and we think, might I have a problem? And then we do it again and so forth. And we realize we're stuck with something in our existence. What does God have for people like that? People like me. People like you. God gives the very opposite of what we deserve. God gives to incorrigible sinners His very lifeblood, the Holy Spirit of God. It's as if God opens his veins to give us his best, to give us himself. So grace succeeds where law fails because grace comes with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need more withering scoldings. We need help. And we have help in the blessed Holy Spirit of God. So, God's grace is a mighty grace. And it starts in, with, with the blunt acceptance of verse 1. Let's think this through. We're going to go right through these verses right now. Okay? Isn't this wonderful? What a privilege to sit here in this lovely room. I, hope, I would love for you to come to Emmanuel Church in Nashville, but it is a dump. <laughs> come spill your coffee, you know. Um, Colin, you've been there, you know. Am I right? It's kind of a dumb. Yeah. Okay. Here we are in this lovely room thinking about the greatest things ever written by the human hand. Amazing. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law does not bring us to God. The law pushes us away in anxiety and hiding. Fear of rejection turns all of our relationships into charades 
faking love, but really manipulating God and each other for the acceptance we know we don't deserve. But the gospel announces to us, all you bring to the table is your guilt and failure and sadness. God brings to the table his mighty love in Christ because his fury was spent at the cross. When you receive Jesus with the empty hands of faith, God puts Romans 8.1 as the new banner over your life. In fact, there's no verb actually in Paul's text. It's just it's like a, a slogan or a brand that God places over your life. The new theme of your life. The most important thing about you is not the sins you may or may not commit or the virtues you may or may not demonstrate. The most important thing about you is whether or not you are in Christ Jesus. And the worst sin we commit is not the one we think. The mega sin is to be too good for Jesus and to stand aloof from Him. It is not our mission to tell people how wrong they are. It is our mission to tell people how wonderful Jesus is to the undeserving who are very wrong. Now, I don't know how verse 1 could be any clearer or more wonderful. Back in chapter 7, Paul's, just think through, you know, his, his, his tortuously detailed self-analysis in chapter 7. There is no release or joy in self-focus. Here's what our union with Christ is worth. We go into hyper-focus on Christ, everything opens up. I mean, just look at these words. There is therefore now, now, present tense, now, not five years from now when we're better Christians. Right now, tonight, at this moment, in this room, in our condition, in the present where we actually live, where we need help. There is now. No condemnation. Not Less condemnation. Not contingent condemnation. There is no condemnation at all. The word no is highly emphatic. It is over as far as God is concerned. In Christ Jesus, not by our living up to the law, but simply by being in Christ. What is more relevant to who you are than who you are is who Jesus is for you. Did I say that the way I meant to? I think I did. (laughs) If you belong to Christ, God has so removed every barrier, you and I as Americans would never say we are in George Washington. That's gobbledygook. But the apostles had to invent a new way of describing. Like we use the word relationship with Jesus. I get it. I have no objection to it. But the word relationship, I have, I have a gazillion kinds of I've got a relationship with my dog. The apostles had to invent a new way to describe this to get in touch with how God has so removed every barrier that we are now in Christ. Not just close to Him. In Him. United with Him. Never to be separated. The Bible says we have been united with Christ in a death like His. 
and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, on our way to that resurrection, united with Christ, which is our destiny, God helps us in another way. He removes condemnation. Now, he gives us a whole new arrangement for living life moment by moment, day by day. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What on earth is Paul talking about? He's talking about a completely new arrangement for living. He calls it the law of the spirit of life uh, because I think he's thinking of the contrast with the old covenant. God has a new arrangement for us now, the new covenant. Under the old covenant, we lived under the threat of rejection depending upon our performance. Now under the new covenant, united with the beloved Son and with whom the Father is well pleased, we are, Paul says, set free from that destiny he calls the law of sin and death, that is the inexorable downward pull of sin and death, sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is awakening in us on terms of grace and the new covenant, a new sense on the heart, a new awareness of God and his love for the unworthy. So, when this miracle starts happening in our hearts, that's when we actually come alive. Paul's, that's why he calls it the law of the spirit of life. He calls it the law of the spirit of life because this new way of living is authoritative. Under the gospel, legalism is illegal. We're under the law of the spirit of life. So God's new order is the exuberance of the spirit replacing and outperforming the exactitude of the law. And his whole point is that this is not an ideal that God is calling us to live up to. This is God's new way of grace in which he provides everything through the finished work of Christ on the cross, verse 1, and the present power of the Holy Spirit, verses 2 through 4. Now you see the word flesh there in verse 3. Uh, that word flesh is the opposite to the word spirit. This biblical term flesh, very important. Uh, some of our translations, I think, say sinful human nature. Um, but it's, he's just talk, he, the actual wording is flesh. Uh, the flesh is the evil that is naturally resident within us. It is so intuitive, it's inescapable. So we can opt out of our brokenness as easily as we can crawl out of our skin. That's what he's saying. For example, in the film Lawrence of Arabia from years ago, uh, Lawrence had a very idealistic view of himself, um, a naive view of himself. Then through some painful experiences, he discovered his failure, found out who he really was. Coming out of that experience, he has a conversation with his Arabic friend, Ali. And it goes like this. Lawrence. I've come to the end of myself, Ali. A man can be whatever he wants. You said it. 
Lawrence, I'm sorry, I thought it was true. Ali, you proved it. And then Lawrence opens his shirt and grabs a hunk of his flesh and he says, look, Ali, look, that's me and there's nothing I can do about it. Ali, a man can do whatever he wants. You said it, Lawrence. He can, but he can't want whatever he wants. This is the stuff that decides what he wants. We hear a lot today about making good choices based on getting the best information. (laughs) The truth is that sin is as unchosen as hunger and as comfortable as sleep. That's the flesh. It doesn't always feel sinful. Uh, what, What Paul calls the flesh is our natural moral psychology. The flesh can even seem virtuous. I mean, the the Pharisees proved that with their horrible goodness. The goodness of the flesh has nothing divine about it, but God understands exactly who we are. He understands and knows us and loves us at all levels. The Belgic Confession of 1561 says, Since it pleased God to give us his Son as our advocate, Let us not leave him for another. For when God gave Jesus to us, he well knew that we are sinners. So what has God done then for broken people who uh, are disabled at all levels of what they are? Verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, at the cross, God so condemned our sinfulness and our virtue, all that we are in the flesh, our natural born condition, He so condemned all of that in Christ's flesh, that's what Paul means, He did did that in such a way as to execute a final sentence. Something decisive happened in this world 2,000 years ago at the cross. The evil we create, both the nice kind and the nasty kind. God took it into himself deep in the humanity of his son Jesus. And that's why Paul can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's grace didn't overlook our offenses. God took responsibility for our offenses and judged our offenses. And in one blinding moment of painful atonement, He judged us in our flesh, once and for all, in our substitute. He got it over with Jesus. So, if you are in Christ, you will never hear God say, if you ever and so forth if you are in Christ he will never drag your sins out in front of you to embarrass you and humiliate you and demean you and manipulate you I mean there are still deep caverns of sinfulness within us all Um, I'm like this if I think of myself as sort of a globe and I've got continents within, I've got oceans within, I've got polar ice caps and you know, blah, blah, jungles, and I've got deserts, and I've got all kinds of stuff inside me. I mean, my self-awareness is limited to one little beachhead somewhere. 
in this vastness. God sees it all. And it's all sort of occupied by the enemy. But we are no longer merely flesh. Because the Son has come in the power of the Spirit. So we have been supernaturalized. There is, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. There is resident within you now the very power that will renew the universe. There is within you now a mighty salvation. There is within you more than personal salvation. There is resident within you cosmic salvation. So Christianity is thoroughly miraculous. So let's not think, well, man alive, I've got the Spirit, but I've still got all these problems. What good does grace do? Instead, we should think, man, I've got all these problems, but I've got the Holy Spirit. Hey, this is going to work out. It's a whole new way of thinking. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, actually, the Paul's text says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the mindset on the Spirit is this new awareness of God, this new sense that God is for me, not against me, this new sense on the heart of the love and mercy of God in Christ, and all that God can do for the undeserving as opposed to my flesh, my potential, and all I've got to do. The mindset on the flesh can, of course, either be in its social location, either uh, progressive and outlandish and cool, or it can be highly cautious and conservative and backward. Those two mentalities might seem to be on opposite sides, but in fact they're playing the same game. Self-exaltation, self-focus, self-assurance, self-justification, self-importance. Every human condition that doesn't come down from above is of the flesh. But everyone in Christ is an ongoing miracle, an audacious miracle of God. So when we start thinking in terms of miracle, believing the gospel, it makes a difference. Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So our natural mindset, the flesh, uh, lives in this simple world of crime and punishment. And everything in our lives we perceive as explainable in terms of either the good we deserve or the bad that we fear. And that whole way of thinking is the death of our hearts. That's what Paul is saying. And that's when we swing back and forth between either self-pity or self-loathing or self-exaltation and so forth. But that is the death that God is saving us from by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we stay there, if God abandons us to ourselves and does not come to us through Jesus, that death will never end because we won't be able to stop. Verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So apart from that, that's who we are in ourselves. That's how deeply we need the Lord. Apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts will be forever angry, and edgy, and tense, and touchy uh, toward our Heavenly Father. And we will always find a way to blame Him for it. 
We will always resent God the way a slave secretly despises a master who makes him work against his will. So, let's not tell ourselves we're really in control of this. We're in control of our inner world and we can talk our way out of this or we can reason our way out of this. When Paul says here that the mentality of the flesh cannot submit to God and cannot please God, he's talking about original sin. He's talking about our unfree wills. He's talking about our ghastly virtues. Everything about ourselves that we trust and put our hope in, the good that we hope is true about us, our feelings of entitlement, for example. So being insolent toward God, thinking we can do this on our own, is as natural to us as breathing. We don't even repent well. William Beveridge um, I don't remember his dates. 300 plus years ago, he confessed this. He's a minister. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give an alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. Nay, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need washing, and the very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. We are so thankful for the out thereness and the exteriority and the someone elseness of a Savior who comes to our rescue with all his mighty heart. And he gives his deepest heart, his whole heart, his very self. He opens his veins for people who don't even know how to repent well. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, for us to be in the Spirit, um, it's not a trance. It's when we, it's being a Christian. It's being in Christ. It's when we find ourselves in this new environment of safety and acceptance and a new destiny as our future. Now, we used to be in the flesh, living out of our own goodness and so forth. When Jenny and I lived in Oregon back in the 80s, one of the trees in our backyard began to lean over, over the, um, our neighbor's house. And uh, it was the fall. We knew one uh, snowfall in, in the winter and... It would probably crash in our neighbor's house. So we had it removed. And when it was cut down, we found out that it was what the problem was. It had died inside. It looked fine on the outside, but the core of the tree had died and rotted away. And we're like that. We're weak deep inside. And it doesn't take much pressure or stress for us to crash into somebody else's life. It's more than bad choices. It's a bad nature within. It's a deadness at our core. And God had the right to cut us down. But what did God do? He entered into us by the Holy Spirit. We still have many failings, but everything has changed at the core. I really like the way C.S. Lewis described, I think it was Eustace in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, Eustace. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. 
There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So our bodies are dead. We're all carrying the fatal disease. You know, we stay in shape. We even maybe get plastic surgery, but every heartbeat is one less. And there's nothing we can do about it. Therefore, we do not access the best of life. The spirit is life, he says. We do not access life that is truly life through the body. Every day in our world, in our privileged, wealthy Western world, we're told if you're not thin, if you're not sexually active, if you're not beautiful, if you're not young, you're not alive. But if that were true, then all the thin, sexually active, beautiful young people in the world would be on cloud nine. They're not. Why? Because life, real life, doesn't flow into us through our bodies. It flows into us through the Spirit. And we don't have to deserve it. The Spirit is life because of righteousness, meaning that the life that is truly life enters into us through the Holy Spirit because of the righteousness of Christ and His obedience. So no one is more alive than a sinner Who's justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from all his works? I mean, if you want to have fun with a bunch of rowdy people whose hearts have been set free because while every heartbeat is one less, they've got a greater future beyond that that nothing in this life can take away, hang out with a bunch of gospel people. I mean, the laughter of the saints is beautiful. We don't have to fake it. Every heartbeat is taking us closer to what we really want out of life. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So God loves all that you are. God loves the humblest part of you, your body. Not, single one, not one single particle of the you that God made. Do you realize that the baseline fundamental you that you are including your body, is not basically a problem. The fundamental God-created you that you are is a strategy. You are ideal in every respect for the mission for which God has sent you into the world. And when your body dies, God will not throw it into the trash bin of the universe. He cherishes your body. The New Testament said the Lord is for the body, not against it. And the Holy Spirit will raise up your body right up out of your grave. There better not be anybody standing real close when you're raised again. I can't believe I have the privilege of driving to Birmingham, Alabama telling people about this stuff. Isn't this great? What a privilege. What a joy. 
There's nothing greater in all the universe. God is not out just to sort of patch you up with a sort of new, improved version of you. God is out to redeem all that you are and to make you amazing forever. And as we live in the crushing banality of this world and all of its mediocrity, we look at our own stupidity at times, we defy it all. We say, no, God says I matter. I'll dare to believe God. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now that's a really weird thing to say. Have you ever thought, you know, I'm really a debtor to the flesh. (laughs) This is not a a point that we commonly understand, and yet we do think that way. Because... The the flesh makes screaming demands of us to keep us in its debt. For example, if I don't get my way in this situation, I might just tell somebody off. Or, if I can never afford that much longed for thing, how on earth can I ever be happy? That's the demandingness of the flesh. And it's that narrative of self-pity scrolling through our minds so often. Now, here's why that inner thought world matters. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we can't just add Jesus to that narrative. We need to put that narrative to death. How? Not by willpower. Um, here's one way not to fight the battle. Jerome, the biblical scholar, died in, uh, I think he died in 420 AD, uh, lived in Rome for a time, had a great time. He knew it was not good for his spiritual life, so he decided to move out to the deserts of Syria and take on the lifestyle of a hermit and so there he was out in the, in the desert and so forth. And later on, he described himself. He had to get away from temptation, right? But here, later he wrote, How often, when I was living in the desert, in that lonely waste, scorched by the burning sun, how often did I fancy myself among the pleasures of Rome? Though in my fear of hell, I had consigned myself to that prison where my only companions were scorpions and wild beasts. I often imagined myself surrounded by dancing girls. My face was pale with fasting. My limbs were cold as ice, but my mind was burning with desire. And the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me while my body was as good as dead. Helpless, I cast myself at the feet of Jesus. (laughs) He could have done that in Rome. But self-punishment is really self-exaltation. It's me saying I can do this on my own and it doesn't change me. It actually reinforces what I am. So here's what the Gospel teaches. The deepest part of us is not willpower, but belief. When I sin, there's always a reason. It's because I believe something. So when I sin, and even I can see it, I need to stop and drill down and ask myself, at that moment, what was I believing? You and I do bad things when we stop believing that God loves us. But even here, 
He comes to our rescue by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, in verses 14 through 16, Paul shows us three ways the Holy Spirit of God changes what we believe about God and changes how we experience God. It's a change from slavery to sonship. The first way we experience God in a new way as our Father and we, this new awareness descends upon us, a sense on the heart that we are received as children, no longer in bondage as slaves. The, the first um, indicator that this is happening to us is when Paul says we're led by the Spirit, according to verse 14. What does that mean to be led by the Spirit? He's not talking about decision-making and guidance. Paul is talking about God leading us further into his love. Being led by the Spirit is the opposite of being driven by the flesh. How are we driven by the flesh? For example, there are a gazillion ways to do it. Here's just one. It's being the career woman who can also raise an amazing family and also have a fantastic marriage and also serve the community and also coach the kids' soccer team and also maintain a social calendar and also read the latest books and also stay in shape and also help out at church and then show up for work Monday morning feeling like a million. And we men have our own versions of that being driven along by our own self-idealization. But for all of us, it isn't about our overscheduled calendars. It's about our turbulent hearts. What is going on inside us? What's going on is that we're living by the law. And it isn't even God's law. It's a self-invented law, a merciless law of performance. But the Bible says if you are led by the Spirit more and more deeply into the love of God, you're not under the law. So God has sent out his Holy Spirit into our hearts to set us free from our frantic grasping. God has sent out his Spirit so that we start feeling loved and provided for and forgiven and cared for and owned as children. And it's all wrapped up in this most unlikely package package of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from all our works. So the Holy Spirit... You see, adoption is, is... Forensic justification translated into experience. Adoption is what justification feels like. And Paul says that this grace is not for super spiritual elite. He gives it to, God gives it to all his children. For all who are led by the Spirit of God in this way are sons of God. Now maybe it's been a long time since you felt loved by God. But here is the gift that the Holy Spirit gives to people who don't always feel that way, loved by God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones explains How important it is. I hope that you're not um, um, embarrassed by or suspicious of experience with God. There are people 
What we need is God-given non-weird experience. Luscious, overflowing, authentic, biblical, non-goofy, powerful experience. That's what Paul's talking about. Lloyd-Jones wrote, The whole object of being a Christian is that you may know the love of Jesus Christ. His personal love to you. That he may tell you that he loves you. That he has given himself for you. That he has loved you with an everlasting love. He does this through the Holy Spirit. So the second way the Holy Spirit changes our experience of God is that we stop dreading God as our slave master and we start feeling loved and adopted by God as our father. Now naturally we tend to experience and perceive God as a threat because it's understandable. We treat him poorly. We expect him to treat us poorly. And so we hide. We may even hide in church. Martin Luther said, if the devil cannot ruin people by making them worse, they'll try to ruin them by making them better. So some people run from God by being bad. Other people run from God by being good, too good to need him. But they hate God all the time. And that menta- that's the mentality of a bad slave just wondering, okay, when's the hammer going to fall? I remember one time when I was in sixth grade, I was being typically naughty at school. This was in California, and the hallway was open. The classroom's on one side, hallway, and then it was open, shrubs along this thing. And I was out, and it was, nobody was out, I think I'd snuck out of class. And down at the end of the hallway, I saw Mr. Rhodes turn the corner. Mr. Rhodes was the principal. Huge man. So I jumped over the wall, and I hid in the shrubs because Mr. Rhodes, the principal, was coming. I thought I was going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, this huge adult face looms over the, the wall there and looking down on me, peering down upon me, is Mr. Rhodes. Now, here's the weird thing. At the end of the day, Don Rhodes, see, we knew the family because they went to our church. Don Rhodes got into his car, drove home, walked in the back door. He saw his two daughters, Cindy and Cheryl, and he said, Hi, kids. They said, Hi, Dad. Two completely different experiences of the very same man. What made the difference is they were his children. When you come into Christ, what does God do? God changes your relationship with God. and redefines you as his child for the sake of Christ, his son, and makes himself your father. And we're really a big part of of repentance is just sort of adjusting to the thought that God loves me. That we have father loves a child. And the Holy Spirit helps us to stop projecting onto God our own darkness and to stop blaming God and to start enjoying him. So the spirit of slavery is its of the flesh, it's of the moral flesh, it's of the religious flesh, the high-minded flesh, the uh, I can do this on my own flesh. And we put it to death by the spirit. That cowering fear, that dread of God, feeling like a beaten slave, 
That's how we used to feel about him. He has told us now who he really is to us. What did God do for us when we hated him? He drew us in. So our hearts crying, Abba, Father, that's justification becoming an experience. Now, you know that that word Abba, of course, is an Aramaic word for a child in informal conversation referring to his or her father. And Jesus actually got us going, thinking of God that way, talking to God that way in the Garden of Gethsemane, the lowest moment of his life, he called God Abba, Father. By his death on the cross, he opened the way for us to get back into that intimacy with God. Now, of course, at that time, the devout people never called God by this sort of language. And uh, you're probably aware that when they read the Bible in the synagogue service and the Old Testament text came to the divine name, Yahweh, they did not say that word lest they would risk taking the Lord's name in vain. So they automatically mentally substituted the title Lord whenever the name Yahweh... In other words, their whole experience of God was designed to keep him off at a distance. The purpose of God is to deconstruct that distance and create nearness which he did through Jesus and he gives it through the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself taught us to pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father. So we never want to pray in a, in a manner that is, we don't want to be flippant and shallow, but never so formal and wooden. I mean, would I want my kids to refer to me as Dr. Ortland? I would be hurt by that. I want my kids to respect me, but I don't want any barriers. And the cross was God smashing the barriers, the psychological and moral barriers we create. When we receive the love of God as our Father, it is a sign that the spirit of of adoption is entering in. Finally, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the third way the Spirit changes our experience of God is his witness in our hearts. The Spirit himself. I love the word himself. Don't miss that. This is God personally, directly getting involved in your subjectivity. This is not a preacher telling you. This is not a friend counseling you. This is the Spirit himself moving into you breathing his witness of the love of God into your very being with undeniable authenticity, a first order experience. When I walk out in Nashville under the Tennessee sun on a summer day, I do not look up and say, I wonder by what line of reasoning can I surmise that the sun is shining on me today? I mean, it's just beating down on me. And it's in that light of the sun that I can then do all the surmising and reasoning about everything else and make my observations and deductions. This is a direct and immediate, authentic experience of God by which then you can reassess everything else in your life. You don't have to take it by faith. You experience it as a gift. Now, you can't standardize it 
Uh, there's no one size fits all. But to have it, you know, to be, to enjoy the adoptive love of God, you just got to be an orphan. Here's how um, Dale Moody experienced this. The Chicago evangelist, 19th century. After the Chicago fire in 1871, he went to New York City to raise money for rebuilding Chicago to help out. But, and he was heavily involved in ministry, but he saw so much within himself that was just disturbing. He saw self-exaltation. He, he saw motives within himself uh, it was about him. And he couldn't stop it. He couldn't get free of it. He was disgusted with himself, fed up with himself. He was wrestling with God. This went on for a long time. And one day, he was in New York in 1871. He was walking down Wall Street. And the Lord came to him and spoke to his heart of his love for D.L. Moody. And Moody was so moved he hurried to the friend of a home not far away, knocked on the door. He said, do you have a, a room where I could be alone? Sure, come on in. Went to that room and later Moody wrote this. What a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Jesus died to give us that. And the Holy Spirit has come to impart it. Why should the children of a king go mourning all their days? Great comforter, Descend and bring some tokens of your grace. Assure my conscience of her part in the Redeemer's blood and bear your witness to my heart that I am born of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we open our hearts to you and we confess our unbelief, our backwardness, And we ask you for the sake of Jesus to receive us as we are and sweep it all aside and visit our hearts with your fatherly love through the Holy Spirit, bearing witness himself, bearing witness directly, personally of your great and mighty love for us in all our need. For this we pray for your glory and our immeasurable comfort and happiness. In Jesus' name, amen.